Our scripture today comes from Luke 18, 9 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 2020 has been an intense year. I've compared it to a series of American Ninja Warrior epic fails. Yeah, those, those are pretty terrible situations. And here's the deal. In all seriousness, people of all stripes have been on a zealous pursuit of what they would consider as right this year and obliterating the obstacles that are in the way of that right world that we're pursuing. Whether that be a better and more right world with our health, a better and more right world with education, the economy, with justice, just to name a few. But as I was thinking about what it looks like to be on pursuit of what is right in the world, I started thinking about what are the greatest obstacles that we could face. And I'm sure you've got some that are coming to your mind at this moment. But today Jesus tells us of one of the greatest obstacles to pursuing what's right in the world. And the thing that's so insidious about this particular obstacle is that it becomes more deadly the more you chase after what's right in the world. That's it. Those who are actually most zealous for what is right in the world are at the greatest threat, the greatest vulnerability for this obstacle being right in front of their path. You see, for you and for me, we need to understand that we can be right and still dead wrong. We can be right and still dead wrong. We can have the right philosophy, the right theology, the right psychology, the right methodology, you name it. We can be pursuing justice and actually be agents of destruction in our neighborhoods. We can be pursuing reconciliation, but at the same time, breeding polarization. We can be pursuing righteousness, and yet actually breaking apart relationships. We can be serving and bringing relief to those in crisis and dehumanizing those in need. We can be right and still dead wrong. And the complexity of how to navigate going forward is that to fix that or to remove that obstacle is not as simple as just, quote unquote, doing another good or right thing. And believe it or not, that's really good news for you and for me. You see, today Jesus tells us a story about two guys. And in this story, we're going to see what that obstacle is, what it does, and how we can go about eradicating it what it is, what it does, and how we can go about eradicating it. And listen, we need to hear this message today 
Because if we can understand and actually live into and lean into what Jesus is calling us to here, then an area where we find the greatest obstacle can actually be a space of a bridge where the church, both diversified and unified, can carry out God's mission and making it more like his kingdom until he returns and fully makes it right. Sound compelling? I hope so. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 18. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you look at the second half, that New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're at chapter 18. And let me set up the story for us. Jesus says that there are two men who walk into a temple. Now, I know it sounds like the setup of a really dumb joke, but hear me, this is an extraordinarily profound story, and we often miss it because we already come with certain base level assumptions. Assumptions that people in the first century, Jesus' original audience, would not have carried into this story when they heard it. You see, when we hear of a Pharisee and a tax collector, we already have assumptions about these two characters that they necessarily would not have had. When we hear about a Pharisee, we kind of see them walking into the story. We hear the, you know, the sound of the Imperial March from Star Wars. Bum, 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 bum. We see them as negative characters. But let's step back and hear this just quickly from a first century perspective. So here are the two guys that walk in. The first guy is the Pharisee. And from everybody's perspective in the first century, this guy was theologically rigorous. He dotted his I's and he crossed his T's. He knew his scriptures backwards and forwards. If you quizzed him on any theological fact, he could give you an accurate answer. I mean, Pharisees were the people who were passionate about the liberation of Israel and seeing justice come to the earth. They were usually the smartest people in the room. They had large swaths of the whole scriptures memorized. When they would come over to dinner, they were the honored guest. If you had an available daughter and he was a single bachelor, you would be trying to set them up because you knew that they were positioned to pursue God's righteousness. They were, they were respectable. They were honored. They were valuable. They were the heroes. That's the first guy, the Pharisee. Then there's the second guy, the tax collector. He's not just a bad guy. He's on par with murderers and thieves, the worst of the worst. And even more than that, they were considered traitors to their fellow Jewish people. You see, they were in bed with the Roman occupational government. They actually helped further the injustice. They collected the taxes. And so they would come to the poor and put liens on their property because they didn't pay their taxes. They would rat out people when they were unable to follow through with the oppressive financial burdens of the Roman government. They weren't just people that people ignored or hated. They were the people that people would pray that God would bring their judgment against. These these tax collectors were the worst. They were objects of God's wrath. So these two guys, a Pharisee and a tax collector, walk into the temple to pray. And you know what's fascinating? You know who God accepts? God says that the second guy, he's the one he declares as right. And it's absolutely astounding. Like, no one's expecting this. This is jaw-dropping reality. God says, look at the tax collector and learn and look at the Pharisee and also learn. Now, but to understand all that's going on here, we need to dive a little bit deeper. And right here, the the Pharisee, we come to see what that major obstacle is. 
So what is the obstacle? The obstacle is a self-righteous posture, a self-righteous posture. Now, self-righteousness or even self-rightness is this self-constructed sense of superiority. You like all those S's? Self-constructed, self-centered area of superiority. It's a way of saying that I am better than you and you are less than me. And that specifically has to do with who someone and how someone sees themselves as a person compared to other people. This sense of superiority, it's behind a lot of different ideologies like white supremacy, but it can also creep into really good work. Those who are pursuing political reform or policy reform to care for the oppressed can also be captured by this obstacle of self-righteousness. It can show up in marriages. It can show up in friendships. It can show up anywhere because it's not just an idea. It's a posture. It's how we carry ourselves. It's how we see ourselves in the midst of the work that we find ourselves. And right here, this Pharisee brilliantly displays it. Actually, in his prayer, he uses the word I five times. Let's take a look together. In Luke chapter 18, verses 11 and 12, we read, and listen for the word I, okay? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, those aren't the greatest of folks, okay, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, a couple things to notice here. One is he's standing off by himself, and no, this isn't some ancient form of social distancing. Instead, he's standing off by himself in order to be seen, as to be set apart, and also to protect himself from all the quote-unquote other unclean people. You'll notice, too, that he consistently is giving his resume, all the things that he's done right. But listen, those are actually good things. This parable is not a judgment on the good actions that we see on display here. He's fasting twice a week, which in reality, he's probably fasting, as was tradition in that time, for Israel, that God might hear their prayers and bring about liberation from oppression and injustice. I mean, this guy is doing, quote-unquote, all the right things. But his error isn't in his actions. It's in his attitude. It's not in his practices. It's in his posture. And whenever we find ourselves either out loud or internally thinking this statement, well, at least I'm not like fill-in-the-blank, then you find the very framework for self righteousness, which is exactly why Jesus is telling this story. And we see this if you go back to verse 9 of Luke 18. Rarely do we get such an explicit reason as to why Jesus is telling a story, but here we do. Chapter 18, verse 9, we read, he, speaking of Jesus, also told this parable to some, so it's directed to a particular kind of person, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So right there we see this self-constructed viewpoint of self-superiority, right? Is this idea of trusting that you have everything within yourself to do the right thing and frankly you're doing a pretty good job at it. Because here's the deal, if you feel like it's all up to you and you actually start to get success, then it's so easy to start to puff yourself up and to start build this, building this resume of all these great things you've done 
and also kind of give a blind eye to some of those things you haven't done so great at. And you, when you really find that self-righteousness is starting to take hold, you feel like you have to tell your resume to everyone you come in contact with, like the Pharisee does even with God in prayer. And you have to somehow defend your resume. So everything, everything, everything comes back to me, 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 me. Now here's the hard thing or the tricky thing about self-righteous, a self-righteous posture is that most people don't, aren't even aware that they have it. It's not like you've ever met like a self-proclaimed self-righteous person like, hey, I'm self-righteous, nice to see you, I've got a self-righteous posture, I'm better than you, I'm better, like, and have a recognition that there's something wrong with that. And if, and if this is true in our lives, often we don't even see it. We become so self-deluded and so justified in thinking that we're better than others that we need a help to be able to recognize it in our own hearts. So how, how do we recognize self-righteousness? It's by looking at what it does. And what does self-righteousness do? It cultivates contempt. It cultivates contempt. Which, interestingly enough, Jesus highlights right here in our passage, okay? Luke highlights in terms of giving us an understanding of why Jesus was telling this story. Look with me again at Luke 18, verse 9. Also, so he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Contempt is the fruit of self-righteousness. Always, always. John Newton, the famous slave trader who actually was converted to Christianity and repented of his atrocious slave trading actions and then became a priest and focused a lot of his energy as a priest in helping abolish the slave trade in England and help support folks like Wilbur or William Wilberforce. He writes brilliantly in his famous letter on controversy this. He says, whatever it be that makes us trust in ourselves that we are comparatively wise or good so as to treat those with contempt who do not subscribe to our doctrines or follow our party is a proof and fruit of a self-righteous spirit. Contempt is the fruit of self-righteousness, and it is extraordinarily deadly. If you actually go to some of the scholarly works that help define what this word in its Greek context, this word for contempt, behind the word contempt, what it actually means is, is treating someone without worth. Treating someone worthless. And this is extremely, this is an extremely violent act. It degrades, it's heavy, it obliterates human beings of which no human being has the right to do. And so it's extraordinarily deadly and it destroys extraordinarily. The Gottman Institute, which studies uh, marriage trends um, and actually talks about when marriages come to an end, they say that the number one predictor that a marriage is headed towards divorce, you know what it is? Contempt. When contempt has made its home in marriage, it is destined for divorce. And this is how they define contempt. This is really good. Listen to how they describe it. Contempt is the most destructive, negative behavior in relationships. Treating others with disrespect and mocking them with sarcasm and condescension are forms of contempt. So are hostile humor, name-calling, 
mimicking, and body language such as eye-rolling and sneering. In whatever form, contempt is poisonous to a relationship because it conveys disgust and superiority, especially moral, ethical, or characterological. Contempt, simply put, says, I'm better than you and you are lesser than me. No clearer words have been spoken. Contempt is the fruit of self-righteousness. It is extraordinarily deadly and it destroys the relationships it inhabits. So let me ask you, where do you see contempt bubbling up in your life? Where do you find yourself comparing yourself with, with a sense of superiority? Maybe it's even toward the arrogant. You're looking down your nose at the people who are looking down their nose at people, right? It's very easy, no matter your station, no matter your cause, to find ourselves slipping behind this obstacle. I know for me, and this isn't going to come surprise to anyone um, who's been on any form of social media, social media is like a breeding ground for contempt. It's so easy when I am distanced from someone to see a phrase or an article that's posted, and I instantly, and hear me, I, I, I really, really dislike this about myself, but the reality is, is that it happens. I think, that is stupid. What a moron. What a worthless idea. And I start going down this track. Why? Because I want to be right. <laughs> I want to be seen as better. I want to justify myself and somehow make myself feel okay in that moment when I see something I desperately disagree with. Well, what about you? Where, where else do you see this and experience it in your life? Is it in a marriage? Is it in a friendship? Maybe it's a work relationship, an engagement with a boss, a coworker, or employees. Where do you see this contempt starting to bubble up? I would dare say that one of the areas that it's bubbling up the most right now, and we as a downtown campus, as a church, need to be diligent in our awareness of it, is in the realm of politics. It's no coincidence that the Pharisee and the tax collector are on two opposite ends of the political spectrum in the first century. The Pharisee, the Pharisee is anti-establishment, anti-occupation, pursuing liberation of Israel. The tax collector has put himself in bed with the occupation, is furthering the injustice, and is pro-Rome control. You find two polarizing spaces. And when we think about our political realities in which we find ourselves today, more and more and more, we are finding ourselves thinking of the person across the aisle as being inhuman, unjust, and frankly, unchristian. Listen, we can have convictions, we can have perspectives, and we should have deeply held beliefs and allow scripture to guide us in the issues towards a more flourishing society as defined by the kingdom of God. But the moment contempt creeps in, because listen, it's going to destroy this little campus. It's going to destroy the church across the nation unless the church gets that self-righteousness, nips it in the bud. You know, it's fascinating. The Harvard Business School professor and founder of the American Enterprise Institute, Arthur Brooks, he makes this observation. He says, we don't have an anger problem in American politics. We have a contempt problem. If you listen to how people talk to each other in political life today, you notice it is with pure contempt. When somebody around you treats you with contempt, 
you never quite forget it. So if we want to solve the problem of polarization today, we have to solve the contempt problem. And if we're going to solve the contempt problem, we really have to get at the root of the matter, which is a self-righteous posture that will fragment the church, destroy our witness, and will not be of any help to our broader society in which we are called to pursue its common good. So how do we eradicate contempt? How do we do this? As followers of Jesus, the only way to eradicate this obstacle is not to go around it, not to crawl over it, but to go right through it and use the tool of the cross to chisel a path. That is the only way that we are able to be able to obliterate and eradicate this obstacle. And so what do we do? We need to cling to God's mercy. Let's look at the other guy, the tax collector, and what we have to learn from him. Look with me here at verses 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, acquitted, vindicated, declared right, is the meaning of that word, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now listen, in no way, shape, or form is Jesus, when he's telling this parable, trying to downgrade the atrocious actions that the tax collector had probably been engaged in before this very moment. In the same way that Jesus wasn't trying to downgrade fasting or tithing or any of those other righteous acts that the Pharisee was talking about. This parable is not about those actions, but about an attitude, a posture. And Jesus sees that posture as on par with the actions we engage with in our surrounding world. So look at this tax collector. For one, he stands afar off, probably in the eastern gate of the temple where those who were considered ritually unclean stood. On top of that, he doesn't even raise his eyes up to heaven. He just looks down, feeling unworthy to even gaze up into heaven. Then he beats his breast. This is the imperfect tense, meaning it's the idea that he's beating it almost repeatedly. The only other time this shows up is later on in Luke where, where those who saw Jesus die on the cross were so disturbed by what they saw that they beat their breast. And then what does this man say? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows that he's a hopeless case. He knows he's got nothing. He has no hope whatsoever unless he just throws himself on the mercy of God. What an extraordinary example of humility in contradiction to the pride of the Pharisee. He knows that he could never make enough restitution for all the wrongs he had done to his fellow man. And so he cries for mercy for him the sinner. Now, in our translation, it says a sinner, but in the Greek, there's actually the definite article, meaning it would be best translated, in my opinion, the sinner, meaning he's taking on the language of probably what other people have been calling him. That's the sinner. That's the one that no one has any hope for. That's the one we need to get rid of, the one who's missed the mark, the sinner. And on top of that, the word he uses for mercy here isn't the normal word for mercy. It's actually the normal word for atonement. And so you find this tax collector knowing that he's hopeless outside of God's mercy saying, God, would you make atonement? Would you cover over my sin? Would you actually divert your wrath by a sacrifice that you provide for me? 
The one that everybody knows is the most screwed up. He's utterly hopeless, except for putting all of his chips on the mercy of God. And so, instead of presuming upon God's grace, he just clings to his mercy. He doesn't try to compare himself to anyone else. He's not worried about what he looks like. It's just him and God. And he recognizes that before a holy God, the only solution to his plight is God's mercy. Nothing conjured up within himself. So he clings to God's mercy with humility and vulnerability. And God says, that's the attitude I'm looking for. That's what it means to be right in front of me. And don't we know this in other relationships, right? We can see this mirrored. It's like if you go into a relationship and you've hurt someone, if you start giving a resume of all the wonderful things you have done and say, see, I've done all these things for you, does that go over well? No! Instead, when you come with humility and say, listen, I don't understand the ramifications of all that has played out because of what I've done, and you come with vulnerability and just say, only thing I can ask is that you would forgive me, that you would have mercy on me. Doesn't that breed intimacy? Isn't that the better, the better pot in which true intimacy can grow out of? In a healthy relationship, certainly. So cling to God's mercy. Now, some of us may be thinking, as I am, as I'm reading this parable, but, but, but God, what about justice? What about compassion? What about morality? All of these categories. Well, of course God is still passionate about all of those. Remember what this parable is about. It is not to discount the other parables and teachings of Jesus, but to zero in on one specific. And it's our attitude and our posture before God and with others. And that may feel very, very scandalous. And we may be thinking to ourselves, okay, okay, okay. So you're concerned about an attitude rather than all these right actions? God, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. Listen, that is our self-righteousness popping back up again. The only reason someone objects to someone else getting mercy is because we thought we never deserved it or needed it in the first place. The only reason we would object to someone else getting mercy is because we would think that we actually don't need mercy ourselves. But we do. Every single person is in need of God's mercy. So how do we process this? And one of the greatest people to learn from is a former arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee who became one of the most humble, compassionate people in the history of the world. The Apostle Paul, who was zealous to persecute the Christian faith, was self-righteous, could give you a better resume than anyone. And yet eventually, when he, was interact, when he interacted with the risen Christ, called himself what? The chief of sinners. And he eventually loses his life for the other and proclaiming Jesus and focusing on reconciliation, justice, and righteousness the world over, all centered in Jesus Christ. So how does he process this? One of the most helpful texts and where the Apostle Paul logically follows how God is both just and the justifier is in Romans chapter 3. And so I just want to read that for us in verses 21 through 26 where the Apostle Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the only thing we can do is cling to God's mercy, to receive it and to rest in it. And when we do, and when we do, this is what happens. We now have a new narrative about ourselves. We don't have to post all over Facebook all of our accomplishments, hoping that other people are going to bring validation to us. We don't have to enter into every conversation trying to figure out why I'm better or why I'm worthy enough. Instead, we know that we are sinners, saved and being saved by God's mercy, being transformed more into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, such that every conversation we now enter into, we come with a framework that we are both in need of God's mercy. I'm in need of God's mercy, and so are you. So we can disagree, and we can still be at peace. We can actually vehemently disagree and have strong convictions and still come at one another with humility and kindness. The greatest obstacle, or at least one of the greatest obstacles, lives within us. It's something we battle within us. And one of the greatest avenues of hope and restoration on eradicating that obstacle is actually what Jesus has done for us outside of us. And so we need to name our contempt and own our self-righteous posture when it is noticed by others who we care about, who are speaking into our lives, or when we see the fruit ourselves. But instead of now leveraging all of our imaginative capabilities to focus in on our inadequacies and almost fall to an opposite extreme of pity and self-focus, what if we leverage our imaginative capabilities to focus in on who Jesus is and what he's done. What he's done, how he's done it at the cross and how he showed us how to do it such that when we follow him, we take on his practice of sacrifice in the path of humility such that in the face of opposition, we can not only die for one another, but even die for our enemies and do so without an air of superiority, without any hint of self-righteousness. And isn't that what our world needs right now? Those kinds of folks. People that in the midst of a polarized culture can actually die for those they disagree with. Are you clinging to God's mercy? It's never too late. If you feel utterly hopeless, you're in really good company because that's when God's mercy works the deepest. Let's be those kinds of people. Downtown campus, let's be that kind of church a church that clings to God's mercy. Let's pray. Dear God, you are generous. You are astounding and you are good. And so when we come to recognize who we are in light of who you are, we cry and pray an ancient prayer and join the voices of saints long before us when we say, Lord, have mercy, 
Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. May we rest in what you've done for us and so now be able to humbly serve those around us and even die for those who disagree with us. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so now we turn to the Lord's Supper, a practice that when we are able to gather together reminds us that no matter your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, your race, your gender, no matter your background, it's a level foot at the ground before the cross. And Jesus is the only one who is high and exalted. So we come and we partake of bread and juice that points us to the deepest of truths in the gospel proclaimed to our senses of taste, touch, and smell. If you have these elements available to you, you're a follower of Jesus and you'd like to partake, now would be a perfect time to do that. If you don't have the elements available, or even if those folks that you've chosen to kind of quarantine or be in a safe bubble with are kind of scattered around, why don't you pause this, gather together, and focus in on the gospel, remembering that this broken bread represents Jesus' broken body for us, and this common juice represents his blood shed for our mercy, the forgiveness of our sins. But before you partake, let us remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, taste and see the glorious inclusion that we have in the gospel because of what Jesus has done for us.